My name's Elliot. We're in this series where we are looking at some of the passages in the Bible that are maybe offensive, difficult to get our heads around. Maybe they turn our stomach when we read about some of the content that they deal with, some of the things that we see happen in these passages. And we're calling it the Bloody Bible because, I mean, simply put, the Bible is a very honest book. And there are several accounts given throughout the Bible that are pretty graphic and there's a lot of blood. And there's some people that have read these stories, and as a result of these, they've come to some conclusions about God, and they've concluded that, well, God's evil and God should be rejected, at least the way they think God is presented. And so there's some stuff that people have said, and you might have heard this in your own life, but people have compared the, you know, the famous Old Testament battle of Joshua, Joshua going to the city of Jericho and destroying that city. They've compared Joshua's destruction of Jericho to Hitler's invasion of Poland or to Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurdish people. Some people have um, read the story about God commanding Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and their reaction was that God was bullying Abraham, and that the command that God gave to Abraham was the same thing as him telling him to carry out child abuse. Others have read the stories about Israel's destruction of their enemies in the Old Testament, and what happened as they entered the Promised Land, and They've described these as an ethnic cleanse that was motivated by a hatred for people from another nation. I mean, some really heavy accusations laid at the feet of God. People reading these stories and jumping to some conclusions and saying some stuff, making some accusations about what's true about God. And so for you and me, what we need to do in response to this stuff is instead of just reacting to it, we actually need to step back and we need to examine the facts for ourselves. And we need to get all the pieces of the puzzle out of the box and look at them and see what's really going on in these passages. And the question that we've been looking for an answer to in this series, and we've kind of been exploring as we've gone through this, is what is the picture of God as presented in the Bible? When we read the Bible, do we find a good and loving God who's worthy of our worship? Or do we find an evil being like some people accuse him of being, who should be rejected and we should want nothing to do with? What What's the picture that we find of God? And coming to an answer to this question is actually a similar process that you and I would go through if we were constructing a puzzle. We all know what it takes to construct a puzzle. You know, you sit down, you've got the box, you get the pieces out, you start to put the frame together, the outline after you put that in place, then you, then you start to assemble the individual scenes of the puzzle and find the pieces that fit and match, and, and you kind of construct it from there and see how it fits into the frame, and you start to make sense of things, and the bigger picture comes into focus. And that's what we've been doing in this series. So we started the first week, and the first week, we got the pieces of the puzzle out of the box that form the outline of what's going on, and those are the pieces that have to do with God's character. God's character forms the outline, the perimeter of everything else that's going on. There's no way to make sense of the rest of this, not, not just in the Bible, but even in our lives. There's no way to, to really make sense of what's going on if we don't start with an understanding of who God is and put that part of the puzzle together. And then after that, we looked at the passages that have to do with punishment, some really shocking, uncomfortable passages that have to do with stories about punishment and consequences in the Bible. And we looked at those, and we talked about them, and we saw that actually what's more surprising than those being in the Bible is the fact that God would provide a way for us to be forgiven for all the things that we've done, that he would be the ransom given in our place so that we could be forgiven. So, so far in this series, we've done some really important work. If you haven't had a chance to, if you weren't here for those two weeks, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them, because we identified a lot of really key pieces of the puzzle 
to help us make sense of what's going on and come to an answer to the question of who is this God and what's the picture we find of him. Now this morning, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to those, go back and listen to them. But today, we're going to shift our attention to what is possibly the most difficult and bloodiest part of the Bible. It's the part of the Bible that has to do with the destruction of the Canaanites. Now, a little backstory before we get into the destruction of the Canaanites. God has recently led his people Israel out of Egypt. In leading them out of Egypt, he's taken them through the desert. As they're going through the desert, he's forming them into a nation. He's giving them laws. He's giving them the standards he wants them to live by. And he's ultimately leading them to this new land, a land that the Bible refers to as the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, they don't just walk into an empty space where nobody's around and they can just start building and constructing. They actually enter into a land that's already occupied. So if they're going to take possession of the promised land that God's given to them, that means that in some situations, they're either going to have to chase the nations out or they're going to have to conquer them. And this isn't a story that you just find in one place of the Bible. It actually takes place over several books in the Bible. And so there are several places in the Old Testament where you can read about this, and there's a lot of battles that it details, a lot of stuff going on. It is, like I said, is one of the more difficult parts of the Bible. But instead of exploring all of it, because we don't have time to do that, we're going to focus on God's kind of overview instruction for what he wants Israel to do when they enter into the promised land. And then we're going to unpack that and talk about, well, what's going on here? So let's read Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting in verse 10. This is God's instruction. It says this, it says, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from the enemies. This is how you are to treat all of the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. Now, quick parentheses before I move forward. Something I want to add. This is not God giving permission to go and rape and pillage these nations. That's not what God is saying here. There's, there's detailed instruction in other passages where God says, this is how you're supposed to treat people in these situations. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying this is in the context of war. This is what he wants him to do. And it goes on, verse 16. He expands. He says this. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Now, again, this is a really difficult passage. I mean, this is one of those passages where it seems like God is acting the most out of line with his character. I mean, just on reading it, you read it at first, and it seems like, is God commanding genocide here? I mean, is he saying, you know, just walk into the land and just, you know, round them all up, gather them all together, and then start killing them? Is this an excuse for the nation of Israel to have strong hatred for people from other nations? I mean, is that what God is promoting here? I mean, on the surface, it seems like well, maybe that's what's going on. But again, let's, let's explore the pieces of the puzzle and let's make a few observations, see what's really going on. When it comes to the Canaanites, a few observations. First one is the story of the Canaanites. This is a story about punishment for evil. That's really what's going on here. The story of the Canaanites is about punishment for evil. 
you can study the history for yourself. Not only is the history detailed in the Bible, but also we've learned a lot through archaeology and studying the ancient cultures. We know a lot about these people even outside of what the Bible reveals. And what we know is that even with our modern ideas and our modern kind of opinions about what's right and wrong, there's a pretty strong consensus that these people were evil. I mean, one of the things that we've learned through archaeology is that their idol worship was highly sexualized. It involved slavery and prostitution. If you think about it, two of the most degrading and abusive practices that can be applied to another human being were celebrated in their worship services. And then you add to that the fact that they also practiced human sacrifices, sacrifices of both adults and children. Deuteronomy 18 says this. So just a few chapters before what we just read. It says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. And then he says this. He says, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. This is just terrible. They, they had this god named Molech, and it was this metal statue that was hollow on the inside, and it had these arms that extended out. And they believed that Molech was kind of in charge of the economy. So if you wanted, you know, let, let's say, you know, you're a farmer and your crops didn't do very well the, the previous year and you wanted really good crops. Or, you know, if your business was struggling and you wanted your business to grow, well, you would offer a sacrifice to Molech. So they would start this fire and get this thing blazing red hot. And then you would take one of your children and you would set it in the arms of the statue. I mean, just, it just makes your stomach churn. It makes you shudder. Pure evil, horrible, horrible stuff going on. So you just step back and you start to study it and you realize, this is punishment for evil. And the Bible actually says that this had been going on for over 400 years. God had tolerated this evil practice for over 400 years. Actually, what's interesting about that is you start to add up the facts. It's often not God's justice that we struggle with, but it's his restraint. And we've talked about this again and again in the series, but this is so important to get Judgment is not God's first response, it's actually his last. That is so important to realize. Usually we think that God is just like a snap of a finger looking for people to judge. That's not what's going on. I mean, 400 years of restraint and patience, and then finally, after all of it, he said, okay, enough. Yeah, the people were being destroyed. Yeah, they were being kicked out of their land. But ultimately, this is a story about punishment for evil. It came because of years of terrible wickedness, and God finally said, enough. So that's the first thing. The story has to do with punishment for evil. Second observation that we can make is this is a story, this is an instruction that's ordained by God. God gave it to a specific group of people. He gave it to the Israelites. He said, you specific group of people, it's not a blanket statement, anyone can do this. This specific group of people is supposed to go and carry this out, and it was applied to another very specific group of people. This isn't just a blanket, go out and do whatever you want to do. This is a very specific instruction, but there's no question that it's a command that God is making. It says in verse 17, it says, completely destroy them as the Lord your God has commanded you. God's the source of this command. So you and I need to ask the question, okay, well, does God have the right to make that command? Does he have the right to tell Israel to go and carry this out, to, to dispossess, to kick the Canaanites off the land, to either chase them out or to destroy them? Does he have the right to make that command? Well, actually, if you, if you step back, which we need to do, we need to look at the bigger picture. You know, the very first verse in the Bible, something that a lot of times is overlooked, is the fact that it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You create it, you own it. 
So what that means is Israel actually doesn't have an inherent right to the land. They didn't have an inherent right to the land. Neither do the Canaanites. It's God's land. So it's not like God is kicking the Canaanites off their land because it wasn't their land to begin with. It was God's land. God's the one that gets to decide who's there. So yeah, God is moving them along. He's kicking them out. And in the process, some of them are getting destroyed. But that's a call that only God could make. Israel couldn't make that decision. No other nation could make that decision. It's God's land. Only he could give this command. It's ordained by God. Now, occasionally, when people look at this, they say, well, isn't, isn't the story of the Canaanites, isn't that just an example of favoritism? It wasn't that just that you know, God likes Israel more than he likes everybody else, and so he treats them a certain way, but he's really mean to everybody else. Isn't that really what's going on here? We all know how favoritism works. I mean, if you've had siblings, you know how favoritism works. You know, like the, the two people, they engage in the same behavior, but one's the favorite, you know, so all their flaws are overlooked, and they get all these privileges, and then the other one, you know, exact same behavior, but it's held against them, and, you know, is a kind of a critical spirit towards them. Isn't that, you know, some people say, well, isn't that what God's doing here? Well, again, if you, if you understand the history of the Bible and you follow the flow of history, what you see is God warns Israel. He says, when you go into this land, the promised land, if you start doing what the nations who are currently there do, the nations that I'm punishing, if you start doing that, he says, I'm, I'm eventually going to bring punishment on you. And then you follow the story, and what ends up happening to the nation of Israel is they go into the land and they take possession of it, but it was only a matter of time before their leaders started to reject God. And they started to worship false gods, and they set up altars and worship to these false gods, and they included prostitutes in their worship services, and then they went as far as to sacrifice their children. It was only a matter of time before God then would bring punishment on them. And so you read through the story, and it's what's referred to as the exile. The Assyrians come in, and eventually the Babylonians come in, and they, they are God's form of bringing punishment on his own people, on the nation of Israel. And the point that's really important is God doesn't play favorites. He operates with equity. He's got the same standard, and he holds everyone to the same expectation. This isn't favoritism with the nation of Israel. He actually goes as far as to raise up a nation that doesn't follow him in order to bring punishment on his own people. He takes evil very, very seriously. He's not playing favorites. Another thing that we need to observe is this story is a story of military versus military. You know, you first read it, and on the surface, it seems like kind of this, like, shocking, scorched earth, kill them all, slaughter them approach. That's what it seems like on the, on the surface. But something that's overlooked, but it's really important to note, is that the command is given for cities. And in that period of time, something we've got to be aware of is the, the majority of people, it wasn't like it was today, you know, today the majority of people live in cities. We live in these massive metropolitan areas. It wasn't like that. The majority of people would live throughout the countryside. They had, they had herds and flocks, and they were farmers, and they raised crops. So they're spread out all over the land. The people that were in the cities would be, that's where, that's where the kings were, or that's where the soldiers were located. So in this period of time, actually, cities were more like military bases instead of these large metropolitan areas where the whole population lives like we have today. Very different. And you add to that that the cities, that's where the temples would be. So this is where the location of the pagan priests or the child sacrifices or the slavery or the prostitution, all that was taking place at the temples inside these cities. And then if you consider that, okay, 
when, when an army would move, when the military would advance, it took a long time because they're, you know, they're moving by foot. So to move a lot of soldiers by foot, it was a slow process. And so word would spread throughout the countryside that, okay, this, this, this army is coming to attack this city. So people would flee. Even people who lived inside the city would run away. You read through the story as God tells it in the Bible, and he actually predicts. He says, hey, when you go into the promised land, a lot of people are going to flee before you. They're going to be gone before you even get there. That's just how it worked in this period of time. That's why sometimes people are confused by this. Sometimes you know, they'll read a story where Israel walks in, and it says that Israel destroys their enemies. But then like one verse later, all of a sudden, one of the people that was supposedly destroyed pops up in the story. Everybody's like, wait, I thought they destroyed them. Well, it's because, again, the majority of the people, they're fleeing. They're getting out of there. The only people that stay in the city are the people that want to stay and want to fight. So in warfare terms, this is not about killing civilians. This is one military going to war against another military and putting an end to some horrendous practices. So once you get the pieces of the puzzle out of the box and you assemble them, this isn't, you know, xenophobia where Israel has hatred towards people from another country. And it's not genocide where they're just going through the countryside and rounding people up of certain ethnicities or races or whatever and putting them to death. That's not what's going on here. What's going on is this is punishment for evil. This is God responding to evil. It's an action ordained by God, and it took place in the context of military against military. That's what's going on with the story of the Canaanites. But that actually brings us to an even more important question we need to ask, a more pressing question. Because in reading this, we, okay, well, we get a glimpse of how God in the Old Testament responded to evil, but that brings to a question for us today. How does God respond to evil today? I mean, in the world that we live in, how does God respond to evil? On the surface, it looks like we live in a completely different world. I mean, we've got all this technology, and, you know, there's longer life expectancy, and there's all these personal luxuries. It looks like on the surface that our world today is just so far advanced, nothing like the world presented in the Old Testament. But actually, if you kind of peel back some of the facade and look below the surface, you realize there's a lot of the same fundamental issues. I mean, we still live in a world where, where we need a military, and we need police. We live in a world where there's, there's evil in this world. And even with all of our advances and our ideas and our education and our technology and all this stuff and all our theories about how to construct society, this is just the reality of the world that we live in. And even though we might try to ignore it and act like we're so advanced and we're so much better, you know, it just keeps getting shoved in our face. So you have a story like what we heard about from New Zealand a few weeks ago where a shooter walks into two mosques in New Zealand, kills 50 people. Evil, no question, that's evil. You hear a story about a college student who orders an Uber and they get in the wrong car and they end up getting kidnapped and then killed. I mean, evil, just, there's no question. That's evil, it just keeps getting shoved in our face. And whether we, whether we see it and we hear about it or whether we experience it in our own lives, we all know we still live in a world where there's evil all around us. And it leads us to say, what in the world is going on? How did this happen? Where did this evil come from? Why are we experiencing this? Surely this isn't how it's supposed to be. That's our reaction. And actually, that's an accurate response. Because according to the Bible, this was not the original plan. The evil we experience is not part of the original good world that God set up. And Jesus actually responds to this 
question of where in the world did all the evil come from? And there's a passage in Matthew where he explains the problem of evil, and then he talks about, well, here's how God responds. Here's how he's at work today. So it says this in Matthew 13, Jesus is talking. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Obviously, this isn't just a farming story. God's explaining evil. He's explaining where it, where it came from, what God's doing in response to it. And the, the servants in the story, they actually ask some really important questions. They actually ask the same questions that you and I ask in the face of evil. The first thing they say is, they say, didn't you sow good seed? Where did the reeds come from? In other words, they're asking, how did this happen? How did this good world get so messed up? And the response that's given is, well, an enemy did this. And actually, in answering this, what Jesus is doing is it's almost like he's pulling another piece of the puzzle out of the box, and he's explaining to us something really important about reality. See, when God created this world, he decided to use the soil of freedom. And freedom, by its very nature, allows the choice to do good or to do harm. I mean, the soil of freedom, it has the same nutrients in it for there to be some really good stuff or some really harmful stuff. I mean, it's just like the dirt in your front yard. It's the same nutrients in that dirt to grow beautiful grass or a beautiful garden or some really ugly weeds. It's just the way that freedom works. Freedom provides the opportunity to make a choice. And the reason that God decided to use the soil of freedom is because what God wanted to grow is love and real relationships. That's what he's after. I mean, just, just think of the beauty that comes in life, the, the enjoyment and the satisfaction that comes in life when you are in a real relationship with somebody, somebody who, who cares about you for who you are, who doesn't judge you, who's not in it for personal gain, but just really cares about you. You enjoy their presence. They enjoy your presence. You can, you know, you have similar hobbies. You can hang out. You can do things. You can laugh. You can enjoy. I mean, just think about the joy and the beauty that comes with that. And that's what God's after. God's after relationships where there's love, not where people are, you know, fighting against one another or, you know, competitive and jockeying for, for position, but where people are, they really take an interest in what's best for the other person. God knew in order for that to grow, not just with other people, for us between each other, but for that to be able to grow between us and him, that required the soil of freedom. So he made a world that's free, and he put us in it. He didn't make us robots. He didn't program us where, where, you know, we're just kind of, there's a program put in, and in this situation, we respond this way, or in this situation, we, we're not robots. A robot doesn't have freedom, because they don't have freedom, they, they can't really love. There's no real relationship. God decided to make us free. And the first people that he put on this planet were named Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, they're given authority over this world. And because they're given authority, that means that everything that they have authority over their decisions will impact that. I mean, it's the same way. You know, in your job, if you have leadership in your company, the decisions you make, those are going to impact everybody under you, either for good or for bad. 
You know, if you're a parent, the decisions that you make as a parent, those are going to impact your kids, either for good or for bad. I mean, this is just the way that authority works. God gives Adam and Eve authority. And what they decide to do is they, they actually believe a lie. And they decide to turn against God. And when they use their freedom to choose to sin, what that did is it affected everything that they had authority over. It affected not only the world, but it also affected all of their descendants, you and me. And from that point on, the Bible says all creation began to decay. The world as we know it and you and me all began to experience the, the effects of the seeds of evil being planted. This is what the servants see in the story. They look out and they say, hey, wasn't it? What happened? It was, it was so good. What happened? Like he says, he says an, an enemy did this. This is the reality of the world that you and I live in. So the servants ask another question. They say, do you want us to go pull them up? In other words, do you want us to go get rid of the evil? You know, they look out and they see there's this beautiful wheat, but then right next to it there are these ugly weeds, and they say, do you want us to go get rid of all the weeds? Do you want us to go get rid of all the evil? And this is oftentimes, this is our response too. We see evil in the world and we say, God, go get rid of all the evil. Can't you just get rid of all the evil, God? And this is the response they're given. It says this, it says, no. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Now, why does he say this? Well, the reason is because it wasn't like this side of the field had a bunch of weeds in it, and this side had a bunch of wheat. It says they're growing right next to each other. So they're popping up, and below the surface, what you couldn't see below the surface is their roots were entwined. So that means that if you go and you grab a weed and you pull it up, you pull up what's bad, well, you're also going to pull up what's good. And the point that he's making is evil is not neatly isolated in the world. It's actually mixed in. You know, sometimes we, we like to think that evil is outside of us. It's separate from us. It's, it's something that goes on over there. It's something that takes place halfway around the world. But because evil is not isolated, it's mixed in, that's the same reason that, you know, you can't just drop a bomb and get rid of all the evil in the world. That's not how it works. I mean, you know, for the majority of my life, our country has been in the fight against terrorism. And this is a battle that we're all, we're all very aware of. I mean, it's on the news. We hear about it. Every time there's election, they're talking about how they're going to respond to it. We have family members or maybe ourselves, maybe some of you have gone and been a part of this. I mean, we all know what's going on. We all know that this, this is not a battle. This is not a fight. The fight against terrorism is not a fight that can be won with a bombing campaign. We can't just launch some missiles and then suddenly it's all going to go away. We know that this fight has required boots on the ground. Men and women have had to go to cities like Kabul in Afghanistan or Baghdad in Iraq, and they've had to go in some situations door to door to stamp out these terrorist cells. We know that that's what's been required in the fight against terrorism. Actually, the battle against evil and the problem of evil is a lot more complicated than the war on terrorism. Because it's not just that good and evil people reside in the same city, or even in some situations where good and evil people reside in the same home. What the Bible says is good and evil resides in all of our hearts. Just like the roots in the story, they're below the surface. You can't see that. What's going on below the surface that we can't see is what's happening in a person's heart. And the point he's making is good and evil resides in all of our hearts. It's, it's at the very core of who we are. The potential and the desire to do really good things that really help people, but also the, 
the potential and the ingredients needed to do some terrible, terrible stuff. It's in all of our hearts. It's at the very core. It's mixed in. Now, because of this, because, because good and evil resides in our hearts, yeah, God could eliminate evil. But if he eliminated evil, you know what that means for you and me? We would be eliminated. So just like in the story, he says, no, because if we eliminate it, that's going to eliminate everybody. So don't eliminate it. Instead, God says, you know what? You know, eventually he will respond to all the evil. That's what the harvest is at the end. But in the meantime, as we're waiting for the harvest, as we're waiting for the end, he says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to restrain evil. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to let it grow together because I want the good to grow. So one of the ways that God responds to evil is he restrains it. He keeps it from reaching its full potential. He keeps it from growing into everything that it could be. You know, all the way back in the beginning, when Adam and Eve made that decision to turn against God and sin, God could have said, you know what? I'm done. I no longer want to have anything to do with this world. I'm going to go hands off. I'm going to go dark. No interaction. Not going to do anything. He could have done that. The outcome would have been, well, this world, evil in this world would have just grown and grown and grown, and it would have just destroyed it. We wouldn't even be here if God would have done that. So instead of just going a hands-off approach, no, I'm not going to do anything, he, he, his first response is, okay, I'm going to restrain the evil. I'm going to restrain the evil. Keep it from reaching its full potential. Give people an opportunity to receive mercy, to choose to follow me. Yeah, they're still in an evil world, but instead of just letting it destroy them, I'm going to give them a chance. And one, one of the ways that God restrains evil, he actually does this in several ways, but one of the ways God restrains evil that sometimes surprises us is God actually uses government to restrain evil. I mean, think about in World War II. It took, you know, the allies, the allied forces to come together to defeat Hitler and the Nazis and all the evil that they were committing throughout Europe. In our own country, in our own history, it took the work of abolitionists and then the Emancipation Proclamation that Abraham Lincoln signed and then Congress passing the 13th Amendment to our Constitution for slavery and all the evils that go along with that to be made illegal in our own country. I mean, on a local level, in our own city, we have laws that are put in place to deter evil in our cities. We have police that patrol our neighborhoods to protect the innocent and keep people safe. And again, they're, they're also a deterrent against crime and evil in our communities. And then when, when there is evil or something's done, they gather facts. They get information so they can take it to the judicial system. And those who do evil can be brought to justice. These are all really good things, things that we need things that really benefit society. One of the ways that God restrains evil is he's decided to use government and police and military as a way to keep it from reaching its full potential. We should be very grateful that we live in a society where we've got a lot of the protections that we have. It's one of the ways that God keeps it from reaching its full potential so we can have time and have mercy and decide if we want to choose to follow him. But even though he uses this to restrain evil, this has never been his ultimate plan. A simple restraint of evil, that's not God's ultimate plan. You know, because, because evil resides in all of our hearts, God's plan wasn't just, oh, I'm going to keep it from reaching its full potential. No, his, his ultimate plan is to go and address it on a heart level. And so God responds to evil not just by restraining it, but he actually transforms you and me. He transforms us. That is his ultimate response to evil. He takes something broken and corrupted by evil at its very core, and he changes it. He makes it new. 
This is something that's only possible because of what Jesus has done. The Bible teaches that Jesus, God the Son, he came. He lived a perfect life. After living a perfect life, he gave his life on the cross. I mean, this is something we're going to celebrate on Good Friday in about a little over a week and a half. And then after giving his life as a payment for all the evil done in the world, your evil, my evil, everyone's evil, after giving his life as a payment, he rose from the grave proving that he was God, proving that the payment he gave was more than enough. Going straight to the heart of the issue, saying, okay, I'm the one who can actually address this. He did that. And now he gives us a choice. He says, okay, well, in your freedom, you still have freedom. In your freedom, now choose to follow me. And he says, okay, if you choose to follow me, what's going to happen? The transformation you're going to experience in your life is that evil that's in your heart, that's going to weaken over time once you start to follow me. And because the Holy Spirit now gets involved and comes and lives inside you, that good that's on the inside, that's going to grow and get stronger, and it's going to spread. It's not just going to impact you, but the transformation that you're experiencing, that's going to have an impact on other people too. See, God's plan was not just to say, you know what, I'm just going to I'm going to build some fences against evil and keep it from getting out. No, he said, well, I'm going to restrain it, but then I'm also going to go on the counterattack. I'm going to launch an offensive attack and go straight to the heart of the issue where the roots are, below the surface that we can't see, and I'm going to bring real change that brings real good. You know, at Seabreeze, our mission statement is thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. We just, a few weeks ago, did a message series where Bevan, for several weeks, unpacked this and explained this. And I love this statement because it it just acknowledges the reality about all of us. I'm broken. You're broken. We're all broken. We all experience the life-shattering effects of living in a world where there's evil. And this is just the reality. But something that God does is he doesn't just leave us on our own. He provides a way for the pieces of our lives to be put back together. He provides a way for there to be transformation. So what he does is he gives us, the church, and then those of us that are members, those of us that are followers of his, he says, okay, join me in this. Join me in going and spreading the good news and inviting people to come and experience what you're experiencing. You know, and if we could see see the, the stage of history in all of time, you know, from our perspective, the church seems so small. And what we're doing seems often so insignificant. But if we, if we could really see it on the stage of history as it really is from God's perspective, we would see that we are, we are a part of the most effective part of the battle against evil. Not just restraining it, that's needed, but actually helping people experience real change when they decide to follow Jesus. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you just look at the stats, you just look at the stats on, say, church attendance or the stats on people who identify as followers of Jesus, the stats are actually on the decline. Fewer and fewer people, not just in our community, but actually around the country, fewer and fewer people go to church or participate in any church activity. Fewer and fewer people identify as followers of God. But there's this one Sunday out of the whole year where this weird thing happens and a lot of people will show up who wouldn't come the other 51 Sundays, and that's Easter. And it's so weird because it's like you can go and you can meet people and you you start a friendship with somebody at the park or you, you know, meet them on a kid's sports team or they're your neighbor and you invite them to church and it's like all year they're like, no, 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 no. Well, do you want to come on Easter? Okay, sure, yeah, I'll come on Easter. I don't, I really don't get it. But it's like even though the, the trends are going in one direction, it still makes sense to a lot of people to check it out. 
So the reason, you know, Joanna talked about this big campaign we're doing for Easter. The reason we do it is not just so we can fill a bunch of seats and be encouraged by the number of cars in the parking lot. That's not the reason. The reason is because we believe that we are part of God's ultimate plan to bring transformation. That's the reason we do it. Bevan's got a great message prepared. If you invite people and bring people, they're going to hear about this transformation. Over in the kids' ministry, they've got great programming prepared. I mean, the little kids are going to do an Easter egg hunt. The bigger kids are going to do a magic show with live animals. I want to go see that. <laughs> they're going to hear the story of Easter. They're going to hear about who Jesus is and the transformation. All the kids will. Same thing in the youth. And this, I'm, I, just, I may just encourage you, being a part of this work, God started a transformation in you, yes. But now he wants you to be a part of spreading that and helping other people experience that. I'm not quite sure why, but Easter is still one of those opportunities that it, you know, yeah, all year we need to be building relationships, but for some reason people still show up on Easter. So whether it's grabbing a basket or inviting your neighbor, I would encourage you to get involved. You know, the reason that God doesn't respond to evil immediately is because he's giving us the opportunity to receive mercy and experience transformation. If he responded to evil immediately, right when it happened, we would be gone. We wouldn't exist. But instead, he, he says, no, I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to restrain it from reaching its full potential and completely destroying them so that they have time to choose me. And then in their freedom, when they choose to follow me, I'm going to allow them to experience all the benefits of a changed life and then join me in helping other people do the same thing. That's what God's doing. That's the most important work that he's doing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that when this world turned against you, you did not turn against it. I thank you for that. I thank you that week after week we have seen that, that judgment is not your first response. Mercy is your first response. And without mercy, God, we would stand no chance. God, I thank you for the fact that you don't just hold evil back from reaching its full potential, but you went on the counterattack so that we could be changed and made new and experience a relationship with you. God, would you help us to be a part of that mission? In Jesus' name, amen.